There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to episode 146 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, this is a weekly show and uh, each and every week I basically try and bring you someone who's getting paid to do something they love. That's pretty much it. <laughs> we all together try and figure out how they do it. Uh, my guest today is Tom Loud, also known as Hot Dub Time Machine. Uh, you can follow him on Instagram and Twitter. More about him in a moment. I'm here today thanks to the many, many supporters of the show, patreon.com slash osher, O-S-H-E-R. Please, uh, if you can support the show, give as much as you can, give as little as you can. Don't give anything, I don't mind. But if you can afford uh, better, pretty much the price of a fancy cup of coffee once a month, five bucks. If you can afford five bucks a month at patreon.com, in return you will get access to exclusive episodes made especially for you. They are follow-up episodes with some of my more most popular guests, including uh, James Matheson, Charlie Clawson, Ash London, Cindy Gallup, Maz Compton. Uh, those episodes uh, can be heard if you uh, support the show for as little as five bucks a month. If you can't pledge, I'll tell you how you can help in just in just a moment. Thanks to everybody that sent me a photo of where they're listening to the show this week. My goodness. This show is all over the world. Um, I'm wondering if there's a name for it because if it's a selfie, that means you're in it, but I don't necessarily need you to be in it. It's usually just picking up the phone that's in your pocket right now, opening the camera app, snapping a shot and sending it to me on, on Snapchat, Twitter or Instagram. I don't know, a potty? Is that a way to talk about a photo? A photo taken of where you're listening to a podcast? A potty? I don't know. We'll try that on. We'll see how it works. But I did get some incredible photos this week. I got um, video, Snapchat video of people listening to this show on sleeper train on sleeper train in Delhi. 
people listening to the show on the rooftops of Barcelona, um, listening to the show while they attacked a suburban kitchen cleaning nightmare in Australia, cycling training up far away, mysterious misty hills. An absolute delight that I and my guests get to accompany you through your week. Uh, It's brilliant. Please, please keep those photos coming. It's just the best. Uh, One thing I would ask you to do this week, it really, really helps the show if you rate this show in iTunes. It works with the uh, iTunes charts. Not only my download numbers are good, but um, there's an aggregate of both the download numbers and the ratings that make the uh, iTunes charts work. So... To help people discover the show this week, an extra incentive is that if you write a rating of this show in the iTunes app, can't do it in the podcast app, you have to do it in the iTunes app, uh, I will select one random commenter and I will give them access to all of the exclusive episodes I just mentioned. Uh, So just go to iTunes, click write a review on this podcast and I'll pick one next week. I hope your week was good. Mine was pretty interesting. Uh, my brain actually came out this week uh, to say, oh, really? Fuck, you reckon you're on new meds? You reckon things are going well? I'll help with that. Uh, so my brain came out to get me this week, uh, which does leave Audrey, my fiance, in a bit of a pickle because when my brain is on the attack, there's like a category three head cyclone going on inside me. Uh, but I've learned just to get on with my day. Unfortunately for Audrey, she sees that my face looks like there's a Category 3 head cyclone going on and I'm just trying to have a conversation with her and try to stay with her and try to stay in the moment while my eyes are just shouting fear and darkness. But she sees that and she goes, what's, what's wrong? What, what's wrong with you? I'm like, it's okay. It's fine. It's just my head trying to tell me the world's ending. What were we talking about? We were talking about seating plans for the wedding. Talk to me about that. Because unfortunately for her, she sees this on my face. I struggle sometimes to stay present in the room, to stay in the conversation completely because I'm just busy noticing that my brain is is telling me that the world is ending and i'm kind of like look i appreciate that you're trying to warn me that the world might be ending but um uh i'm trying to have a conversation about wedding plans um and so if you could just leave me alone for just a little while that'd be great but my brain just keeps going fucking run it's all over um but she sees my face lose my lose concentration and then she thinks i'm not interested which i am but I'm just kind of like Andre the Giant versus Hulk Hogan, but I'm Hulk Hogan. Um, WrestleMania 3 or 2, I think it was. It's a very old reference. Uh, but I'm just basically dealing with my head. So I just had to explain that to her basically this week and just have to say to my brain, not today, buddy, not today. Um, thankfully, she's understanding. She gets it. And I just asked her, you know, in those situations, because she, she asked me, like, are you okay? Are you okay? And she asked me, obviously a concerned voice because I, I look like I'm really frightened, but it actually it actually makes it worse. So I just asked her this week, so could you just hold my hand when you notice my face change? Could you just hold my hand? And it really helps. So we're working on that. And I am just couldn't be more grateful that I'm able to communicate that with her and that she's open to the fact that she lives with me and this headstorm. Um <laughs> Uh, radio was good this week thanks to everyone in Brisbane that listens uh, we're doing well up there it's a lot of fun to be on the show uh, I love I love doing radio it's the it's the greatest Bachelor was also super fun this week if you're not into Bachelor I do get a lot of people email me and go I never watch you on television I'll just put this to you if you want to have a fun night watch The Bachelor and follow the hashtag The Bachelor AU on Twitter 
and I pretty much guarantee you'll find a point of view that reflects how you feel about the show. All right? It's a lot of fun. Twitter was invented for The Bachelor. The Bachelor was invented for, the, for Twitter, basically. Uh, I really, I would recommend you, you watch it. Just keep your eye on Twitter, to be honest. It's, it's pretty fun. It's like pop-up video. It adds a whole new dimension to the experience. So let me tell you about my guest. My guest today, Hot Dub Time Machine, is probably, he's probably the hottest DJ ticket in town right about now. Uh, it's a creation of my guest today, Tom Loud, DJ Tom Loud. It's a time-traveling dance party. It's currently packing out huge rooms, not clubs, huge rooms. I'm talking 2,000 seaters all across Australia and Europe. And um, he's really kind of redefining what it means to go and have a dance. He's opening dance culture up to a whole new audience, and he's, in his words, just spreading joy right across the world. Now, Tom reached out to me over Instagram. It turns out that he and I worked together a long time ago. You'll hear in the start of the conversation, he does have to remind me. Uh, but he let me know about the success he's having and that he'd like to come on the show because he's a fan of the show. He listens to the show as he travels. I caught Tom at Splendor in the Grass not long ago, and I can tell you right now, he knows how to make a party happen. He knows the formula. He knows what's up. You'll also hear in this show how mental illness plays a part in Tom's story and how his life became so much better and his success followed once he took responsibility for his situation. He worked on getting help. He worked on getting healthy. It's an inspiring story and it's a story that might even make you want to dance with excitement. Uh, you can find fantastic mixtapes that he's put up at hotdubtimemachine.com. I highly recommend you download a few of those mixes. They're freaking great. Uh, he's got a podcast as well. If you search for Hot Dub Time Machine in your podcast app you're listening to right now, you'll find some of this music that I'm talking about. Um, you can see Hot Dub Time Machine all over UK, the UK and Australia in the coming months. He's doing a lot of gigs in Scotland, in Edinburgh, uh, in Glasgow. He's then coming through London and, and Sheffield and Leeds and stuff. And then, then he comes back to Australia towards the end of the year. Um, but like you'll hear me say in the show, people go back again and again because it's just the best party ever ever and i hope you can hear that it's a great story and i can't thank tom enough for sharing it with us enjoy this conversation with uh, your chief captain and time lord of the hot dub time machine frankie will be he, he might he, he might hump a thing or two while you're here. Um, awesome. He's pretty excited because we were just at the park and um, the lady that um, we got him from, the breeder, because we wanted to get a dog and um, we asked Chris Brown, the vet, that oh, yeah. works at Channel 10. I'm like, well, I'll ask him. So he's got a very impressive chin. Worship Chris Brown. He's, he's a very, hell of a chin. He's impressive everything. Yeah. He just never stops working out, I don't think. I used to record his voiceover as well. Oh, really? Back in the day on the first... Um, <laughs> Wasn't even when he had his own show. He was doing spots on another one. Worked Possibly, with him. he was just starting out, like a healthy, wealthy, and a wise, yes. or some sort of lifestyle issue. One of those things. Well, he um he used he he said, oh, you got to go to this lady in 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 Bathurst. She's a bit odd, but they all are, mm -hmm. and um you got to go check her out. And so we started getting in touch with her, and she's just been the greatest. And every dog we've met that comes from her, she's has four lady dogs. 
she only lets them get pregnant once a year. She doesn't okay. like just keep them pregnant the whole time and they just have this great life and she uses the money to build a disability access centre in Bathurst. Cool. That's what she does with the money. She doesn't put the money back into buying Ethical more. breeding. Yeah, yeah. Well, Sweet. you'd be surprised. The vegans got so upset once I put <laughs> The vegans don't like me. They love me, they love me and don't love me. They're like, oh, look, there's a bloke on telly that, oh, fuck you, you're not doing this right. I would have thought they're like a fairly easy uh, subculture to no, offend. No, 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 The vegans are just not very happy. <laughs> there's a, there's a are you of, vegan? You're fully yeah, vegan. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Are you, and you're sober? Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Six years, April, May, June, July, five months, six years, So five caffeine's months. like. So you can pry my coffee from my cold, dead hands, Tom. <laughs> that's all I've got. Last man standing. That's it. That's all I've got. All I've got is coffee. And even then, I have to really watch it because I've come to discover that when you have a generalized anxiety disorder, pumping yourself full of stimulants, generally not the best idea if you want to keep yourself yeah. just kind of. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm working on that. I kind of do it professionally though, <laughs> like, and I have that very th- same thing. But like, when I do gigs, um, caffeine is is my is my drug of choice. Then mixing it with alcohol, and it's uh, it's what I do. All right, <laughs> yeah. I mean, but it's such a heightened thing that environment. That I can't like, look at a can- I can't look at a can of Red Bull. It just yeah. I remember I hear oh. you hear you speak about that. Like I tend to have two before I go on stage. Oh well, look, and then like have another one kind of there. Look, let's 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 be honest. Like I'm. You know, you would be hard pressed to find a triathlete that in the last 10 Ks or 15 Ks of their race uh, on the bike um, or, you know, doesn't, doesn't have a, a, a bead on a bottle just full of either Red Bull or Coca-Cola yeah, right. or like they're all. Yeah, man. That's, that's been helping Gotta people. Get your win. juice where you can. It's been, been helping people win triathlons for a, for a long time. Um, but I'm so stoked you're here. You reached out to me on the, uh, I think it was Instagram first. It was on the Instagram, yeah. yeah. That's super duper. And you said we met a long, long time ago. Yeah, I was one of the uh, one of the many people who's probably been your sound engineers over the years. I used to work in TV, this year called Tracks, oh, yeah. Park, Series 1 of Idol. Was that like 04? Uh, series like- 2 of Idol. The first Series of Idol we did at, at someone's mate's. Oh, right, right. Maybe you know how there's like people who go, oh, no, it's a studio, and you go around there and it looks. Was Millsy Series 2 or Series 1? Millsy was Series 1. There you go, because we had a chat about that. Maybe we did get, to, yeah. I um, think because then, but then it got moved to the studio, and you guys did it at the studio. Uh, we ended up doing. They did post in house. They did audio post yes. in house. Eventually, we ended up yep. doing VO in the house. But uh, the first series was, you know, in the early days when Pro Tools rigs were still somewhat prohibitively expensive, and there was like some guy who looked like one of the four horsemen from the X Files. <laughs> You know, who, who is got, oh, it's, it's, oh, it's his studio. And you go there and it looks like just some sort of like the, the, <laughs> the back room of the Mythbusters office. Okay. And you know, there's just cables everywhere and it smells funny. And like, this isn't, no, this is just your mate who can afford an analog to digital converter. Yeah. And you've sung this gig his way. This is really weird. Yeah. <laughs> so then we did the first season there. Okay. And then, and then we came to you at Tracks. Yeah, so I still right. work. I did Bondo Rescue at Tracks. Yes. I, I missed, yeah. I missed, I was like, I'm taking my shoes off. That's all right. Getting comfy. That's okay. I'm wearing it's my a, snazzy shoes It's an too. Islander, Islander house. It's a, it's a shoes <laughs> off kind of place. Um, yeah. Ugh. Um, yeah, I used to mix a bit of Bondo Rescue. I did like a series of that. I kind of worked at Tracks for about six years and that was – I worked my way up from being like in that – we recorded you in this tiny little studio, Studio D. And I used to sit in there and um, – Which one was Studio D at Tracks? Well, there's, so there's, there's like four mix theaters. There's like the – there's A and B. And A was the one that you probably would have seen the most of. It's got, the big, it's got a big uh, voice room. It's got and, a control room at either end of it? 
Um, no, they only has one. They're all kind of like fairly little TV rooms. But um, a guy called Neil did most of the mixing on um, yeah, one of the Yeah, I remember now. But then, uh, yeah, I went to Studio C, which is, which is my jam, where we do all the drama shows because mm. we actually got into mixing drama and did like 199 episodes of McLeod's Daughters. Wow. And, uh, so you're trying to stuff. find a, fo- a Foley effect of someone putting their arm in a cow. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, definitely. Like looking at your little Zoom recorder, I had like the H2 version of that. And I yeah. used to go around and I was just obsessed with it, obsessed with sound recording. Like it's kind of worn, worn off a little bit with age, but even like just looking out the window at your beach there and kind of remembering how difficult it was to get a good wave sound and get like the perfect Where did you, So how did, you, how did you come to tracks? Where did you grow up? Um, I'm from, I'm a Sydney guy. I was born in Perth, but I'm mainly from the Lower North Shore. When did you come to Sydney? Uh, when I was two. Oh, right. So it doesn't really, it What did you folks do? My dad worked for CSR. He's, the sugar uh, company? Yeah, the sugar company. And uh, like he had, a, he had a career that like people of our generation can't relate to. He got a cadetship straight out of school by wow. CSR. And so they put him through university and he was in the um, engineering workshops. And then he worked his way up to being like a pretty kind of high up corporate dude. And um, yeah, he worked for them for like, I think it's, sorry to doubt if I get it wrong, but I think it was almost 40 years wow. he worked for them. Like, yeah, that just doesn't exist no, anymore. No. Unless and you start the company. Yeah. No one does that anymore. Cadetship, work and pension. I'm not sure if he quite what? got the pension, but some of his colleagues did. So it's a whole lifetime company of pension. care. Yeah. Wow. Along with your super and stuff like that. But um, yeah, and then we moved to New Zealand for a long time. So I'm kind of thinking myself as being doing half sh- New Zealand. Sugar stuff over there? Yeah, Chelsea Sugar is the big company in New Zealand. So dad went over and worked there for a while. As an so, engineer? Well, no, he was at that by the stage as a corporate man. So okay, so when, when we're talking about engineers and sugar, it's um, melting points of things and viscosities of things and how can we transport this particular part of the process to that particular part of the room and make sure the pipe is hot enough or cold enough so it doesn't change state, that kind of stuff? Well, that's what my sister does. She's a food scientist. Even better. I know. So she actually um, like puts the uh, – came up with the Red Rock Deli flavours and so that's what I tell my friends. What? I know. That's what my sister does. It's really, wow. it's really interesting So stuff. what was her way in on the shapes to flavour change <laughs> controversy? Oh, I don't uh, – I don't recall actually. I haven't quizzed her about it. Because that was uh, that was some bullshit right there. See, I'm, I don't have that passion for the pizza shapes that so many people do. Well, I think you know it went from. I think it was a, an idea of we're going to save some money, so we're going to change right. the flavour. But in many ways, we a lot of people think it was a red herring, that a false flag attack. So we're going <laughs> to we're going to float the idea that. Um, hang on a sec. Dog is eating a <laughs> box of. This is real life action here, guys. I'll show you. Yeah, oh, no, it's all right. it's saving a box. A box. Well, it's uh, they've discontinued the film. I'm going to shoot your portrait on later on. They've discontinued it. So uh, I've, got, I've got my brother to buy every last box he could find in Shanghai because uh, he lives over there. And film. I won't tell you how much money I spent on Peel Apart film. Right. <laughs> but it was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, it's all in a fridge somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, what I was talking but about. Yeah, oh, yeah, my sister that, makes. <laughs> that, was a, that was a false flag. The idea is like we're marketing new flavour and the people mm. go, that's terrible. And they go, all right, here's the old one again. And a, a renewed interest in the brand pops up. Oh, well, it's good. Coke, Coke's been accused of it and a few other people okay. accused of it. Wow. So there was, there, was, there, was, there was nerdery in the house as a kid, right? right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. I'm, I'm a master. My dad is really, he's a really smart guy. He's um, very, very good at maths and science and stuff. But that kind of, more, he was, I think he's more a uh, – Mechanical engineering. CSR was a massive company. It still yeah. is, but, it, but at the time it was right up there in the top 10 Aussie companies. And they owned macadamia farms in Hawaii. And we went and lived over there for a while. What? They, they owned like ready mix concrete was one of the countries. They had like, they weren't just sugar. They were an enormous thing. So wow. the, the um, workshops, I think, were 
quite a thing in the 60s and 70s. Wow. That's, some, that's something else. And yeah. um, so as, as a kid, where, where was the first, I mean, to become a, an engineer of uh, even like Pro Tools when we started, you know, that, what year did I get you? Your first year, your third year, your fifth year? Um, yeah. Well, was it 2004? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That would be my, my second or third year. Second or third year. So, yeah. so leading up to that, like you don't get a gig at one of those stations because they're at one of those uh, studios unless you can, you can really run one of those rigs and run it well. Yeah. Um, when did the first inklings of, oh, this is kind of interesting and I'm better at this than everybody else, when did that start? Um, well, I did communications at a uni. I did communications at UTS. <laughs> Because I desperately wanted to work in radio. That yeah. was what I wanted to do. I wanted to be on Triple J and I had this image of, uh, of myself doing that. And, um, yeah, and, uh, but then I did it and I kind of got lost track a little bit in the, uh, once I'd left school and while I was at uni because, you know, communication is a pass-fail degree and I just couldn't believe that after working so hard to get a great TR and things like that. I was like, pass-fail, that means that I don't have to do anything. Right. And uh, so I bartended in nightclubs and worked in kitchens and enjoyed that way more than uni. <laughs> like, so, yeah. Did you ever DJ back then? No, no. I didn't discover raving until like maybe 99, 2000 when a friend took me along to rave and I didn't really – I was very much a heavy metal guy. Yeah. I really uh, – yeah, and I was very kind of snobby 90s metal. You're, uh, my, I thought that Mike Patton, everything he did was great. Tool, yes. Mr. Bungle, oh, Faith No More, Okay, very technical. Primus. Very yeah, technical. I was a drummer, like kind of a bad drummer. Oh, right. But, um, so, I mean, I was, that was the kind of bands that really influenced the music that I was playing in the 90s and we were like 4-4. Four, four. Mm. Who wants to count to four when we can count to seven and 11? It was a scene. Do you remember a band called Cartoon? <laughs> yeah, I do. Absolutely. Oh, Poor man. Man's Primus, my friend used to call Oh, he's a little funky. I From really... Lismore. Yeah, right. Well, we used to. I'm in Lismore. Sheep and stockings. Yeah, yeah. Sheep, Sheep and stockings. From Lismore. Yeah. So out of that uh, music, uh, the music uh, program at Lismore Uni. Right. Is where they came from. That's yeah. That, yeah. I thought they were from up north, kind of yeah, up there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because well, I was doing music college around the same, just around just a year before, and it was just, oh my god, this band! They went to this college together, and now they're signed. Wow! Every now and then, I kind of look them up and go, I wonder what the boys are up to, because they were some talented lads. Cow. Yeah. Cow. I remember seeing them. Yeah, and and Shamus, my uh, the the guy that introduced me to Jacques Pistorius, um, I remember seeing it at the front row, going, "How good is this?" He went, "Poor man's primers." <laughs> Well, Primus could be a bit intimidating, like just Les Claypool kind of like mm. screech. Like it wasn't an easy music to introduce people to, whereas Cartoon no. had some stuff that was actually quite funky. All I wanted to do was be Les Claypool. That's all I wanted to do. All I wanted to do was be the drummer, but I just didn't have the discipline to practice, man. Yeah, there was a was lot just, of counting that yeah. went on in that kind of stuff. But it was like Ray Thistlethwaite was, yeah. went, to uni, went to school with him and um, a guy called Julian Kerwin, who's a really good guitar player. He plays in Monsieur Camembert and um, he was in a band called um, Darth Vegas. Yes. For a while around Sydney, but like really talented musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I didn't uh, really practice that hard. But then, yeah, I got into, I uh, went to uni, kind of didn't do much. Um, and yeah, went, um, didn't, oh, yeah, but I got really into sound design. I thought I wanted to do radio, but I thought I wanted to be a journalist. But then I went and made up every single article. Like I treated them like creative bits of writing. Just See, now I, you could get a job with that kind of stuff. Yeah. There's a lot of that going on. Yeah. But I couldn't, I just couldn't pick up the phone, man. Like I think it was like the early, you know, I was obviously, had issues back then, but I was just like panicking. I couldn't pick up the phone to call people. To do the cold calls. To do the cold calls. Yeah, I just didn't yeah. have it in me. And right. so I would fake it instead. I'd just like lie essentially and make up these articles. And then I thought, this is not a quality for a journalist to uh-huh. have. So, um, 
But I discovered I was pretty good at cutting together the little bits of radio things, making the sound effects, and yeah. like was pretty good at Pro Tools. Uh-huh. And so, and like really, uh, we did out there sound design. We did like your, you know, your, your. I was going to say Nicholas Cage, your John Cage's, your mm. Stockhausen, all that kind of avant-garde stuff. Mm. Like I really got into that. That was the first uh, first albums that we had at home were uh, Stockhausen mm. and Philip Glass wow. and John Cage records. I had we had four thirty three on vinyl. What does what do your folks? Our oh, dad's a, a, a rheumatologist. Mum's was an anaesthetist, but, but they were into wacky stuff. Dad was into very odd, huh. uh, very odd music. I mean, you know, when cool. you were smart uh, in Prague in the sixties, you became a doctor. And he the avant garde is a serious. He business. was right into it. Yeah, right into it, especially in the sixties and seventies, living yeah. in London. He was right into that stuff and the Stockhausen stuff. They were all the vinyls we had. We had Concrete Music on vinyl. We had John Cage on vinyl. We had. Dad took me to a Philip Glass show in. Huh. He's an 89 tour or something. We saw um, the clapping song and we saw s- six pianos. We saw it live. It was freaking amazing. And so oh, that's the music that I, other kids would put on their parents' records and it would be the Bengals or whatever. Mine was Stockhausen and, and uh, yeah, Philip Glass. And, uh, Explains uh, a lot. Like, guys, if you're trying to imagine this kind of music, it's, just, it's kind of more noise art yeah, than like yeah. you're not talking key signatures and things. No, it's no, just no. And, and at the like, time, you know, that, I mean, it was especially the concrete music, the Stockhausen concrete music is extraordinary, extraordinary. But at the time, when you think of like he was inventing the instruments that he would then make the music with mm. and, you know, just playing with low-frequency oscillators and stuff like that and creating mm. sounds that no one had ever, ever, ever heard. Mm. It is completely mind-blowing. Wow. Yeah. Was it Pierre Henry's Book of the Dead? That's the other one, Tibetan Book of the Dead from Pierre Henry. Okay. That's really, it's just basically the sound of, hey, well, let's put this tone generator into a signal oscillator. And so it's all replicated now by hardware, I mean software. But it's basically, you'd see the cover photo. One. I remember looking at the back of the album cover and just seeing like this, this musician with a soldering iron. And, yeah. Like in a lab, basically. Giant modular synthesizers. Huge, like knobs covering and the patch wall cables and, everywhere. And... And there's, you know, very polite. Um, I think Stockhausen even designed the speaker system for it to be heard out of, like that kind of. Yeah, memory. yeah, freaking. It's recently gone back to that. Like, you can't be like a big American EDM DJ without having like one of those modular synths in your studio. Right, right. Like that's the thing. Like, because laptop music is so accessible. Like, Dead yeah. Mouse is always having his, you know, his modular there. <laughs> he and doesn't like... patch anything. <laughs> it's kind of why I was really into Afix Twin and when he first came out, because he was this genius 15-year-old who was creating wiring together his own MIDI controllers and stuff yeah. like that. And it just blew my mind that anyone could yeah. have some seven bit, you know, probably people like seven bits. But, you know, in the 90s, early 90s. Oh, yeah. So how does a high school kid learn how to do that? Anyway, so you were on, at the time, the barrier to entry to learning to getting a Pro Tools rig is a very expensive Macintosh computer that a lot of people couldn't afford. Where was the machine? Oh, man, UTS. At that time, they had great gear. They had really good gear. And that's where I, uh, yeah, it's a good sentence. They had really uh, amazing equipment there. The Oblique Room, the Red Room, which were the two Pro Tools studios there. One of them, like they had big monitors. And me and my mates, we just loved just going there and listening to music and just cranking it up and just playing with the gear breaking it, breaking the speakers, like just <laughs> doing uh, – it was, it was fantastic. And then, um, but yeah, I kind of barely finished that degree. Um, I was, yeah, literally barely finished it, kind of just passed, scraped through. And, um, and then it was like the year 2000. I kind of had no idea what, what I was doing in general. I just knew I wanted to go overseas. Mm. So I did the whole um, pack up and travel thing yeah. and went to the UK, hang out over there and um, for about a year. And then I came home. I um, had a bit of, you know, had a, a bit of a uh, kind of mental breakdown while I was over there. Oh. It was a pretty uh, intense time in my life. 
And then, um, but basically I was kind of getting the, the whole time after school, I think I was getting progressively more kind of lost and more wrapped up in kind of, I guess my undiagnosed, you know, mental health issues, I would say these days. But yeah. back then I was just thinking, I was just wrapping myself up in so much bullshit and kind of worries that it all kind of came crashing down in a heap in the uh, Italian coast. Oh, when I was working on a boat there. Fuck. Man. I was, I was overseas when it all fell apart for me. Yeah, it's right. fucking scary. So scary. Terrifying, yeah. So hang on, just, we'll get to that in just a yeah, second. Yeah, yeah. I just want to – I'm just interested because the parallel here, there's a, a Malcolm Gladwell book called Outliers where he basically talks about the, the difference between um, uh, Bill um, – Microsoft, Bill Gates and mm. the other people uh, in his grade at Stanford was that like his mum worked at the lab and she would – let him in at nighttime and he would code all night. Right. And then when people walked up in the morning, because it was the only machine in town. And so when he was 13, by the time he was graduating uh, university, he had an mm. extra five years of experience of coding. So yeah. I'm just wondering, like, was it a, a, a battle to get access oh, to the these machines? Into, into, to, yeah, like, the yeah, Pro man. Tools? Was it a battle to get access to these machines? It was. But then, like, I, I kind of, um, so I came back after that and, and did a bit of a master's at UCS. And there, there was a course in audio post production. Up until uh-huh. then, I didn't know what audio post was. Right. I was still thinking, you know, I knew I was making like, Installations. Yeah. I hadn't hadn't worked out how to. And then, like audio post, I was like, is a way to do sound design and get paid for it and have yeah. a job, sit in those mixed theaters and get paid. Mm. So I did six months of that, and I just loved it. I thought, oh, this is what I'm going to do. And everything in my life was kind of better. I was on good medication stuff. And I said to the guy, okay, I want to work in this industry. How can you do it? He said, no, it's, it's impossible. Like, don't. Yeah. I was like, that's great, man. Thanks very much. I appreciate that. But then he actually did give me a few bits of work experience. And I did work experience at every studio around Sydney pretty much. And in the end, it was actually a family connection that tracks. Yeah. One of the guys there kind of knew my dad. And so that got me in there for the work experience. And then they gave me like a real low entry, um, a job that's probably kind of, yeah, looking back on it, it was incredibly fortunate, a full-time minimum wage studio job. So they just put me on. Um, they gave me a room with a Fairlight system. It wasn't even Pro wow. Tools on the old Fairlight MFX um, with the rotated knob. Oh yeah, like a Mercedes uh, navigation system now. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And um, so yeah, that's what I did. And they kicked me off on McLeod's daughters. I started that and um, just cutting sound effects. And then I worked there for like six years. Just hundreds and thousands of hours of it. Yeah, man. And I just loved it. I was just obsessed with it. it was just this was so it was so good. And I would just pour everything into everything that yeah. I did because I was aware of how competitive it was and how lucky it was to have that job yeah. and um, so yeah I would just pour everything into these but if, uh, if, shitty TV shows not your ones no, no 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 no, no but, but you know <laughs> if you're anything like uh, you know if we have any more of a similar pathway I mean mm. I spent five years of my life getting paid to sit in a room and not talk to anybody it was awesome right <laughs> right it was great which, which job's that radio, referring to uh, doing overnight radio oh right right it was great I could get paid and just sit in a room and push buttons. Yeah, yeah. Uh, occasionally talk on the wireless, but... Oh, it's actually really... Like, I didn't have to interact ha- with anyone. It was brilliant. Definitely. And those <laughs> things like where you can lock yourself away. Yeah. That's Sorry, really interesting. Can't, can't, can't talk. Yeah, yeah. Talk. People would like... And you kind of get really in the zone and like... Yeah. The receptionist would bust in or something. You're like, what? <laughs> so you mentioned before and, you know, it's okay if you don't want to talk about it. I mean, mm. you know, but... You, you said that things kind of fell apart for you in Italy. Let's just, let's just back it up a bit. When did you realize that you might have been a, a little bit different and handling the world a little bit differently than other people? I think it was really that moment. Like I don't think I had any I, – I didn't even really – I think I was moody and stuff mm. as a teenager and I'd have these down moments where I wouldn't talk to people and stuff. But I didn't, I didn't uh, think – you know, when you're in it, you don't know. No, that's the worst and then part. It, yeah, and it all just kind of built up. I think it was only when I just like could I ceased to function mm. from, from like the panic attacks. Like I just uh-huh. couldn't do anything, and um, 
and that's when I like, oh, I need, I need help. I need to like, I pulled the rip cord of like. Right. What were you stuff. using to manage it? Were you using because well, I, I smoked I, I, yeah, yeah. alcohol and, and weed was a very very handy and very readily available drug yeah. for me. See, <laughs> weed doesn't. Yeah, I think it was actually pot that was was certainly not a good thing for me. I like got I got really into it. That's kind of why I stuffed up my arts degree as well. I got and I always thought that like because you see you know the Simpsons would have like a kind of a pot thing. It looks all trippy and stuff. And in the movies, American things are always talking about like how yeah. pot is dental and stuff. But when you're doing bongs of like some kind of spiked biker like hydro, hydro oh my stuff. god adelaide yeah yeah it really didn't did my head in i think yeah. and i don't think i was ever really good at it i just used to sometimes i'd black out and sometimes i'd freak out and then and so yeah pot didn't help it but it really helped the social thing like it because right. you're hanging out with all the boys and uh, you're doing yeah, cones yeah. and um i had my first mad like terror 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 panic attacks on weed like oh, fully. living nightmare stuff on yeah. weed. And it was only when I smoked weed that it would happen. And then after a while, it started happening when I wasn't smoking at all. Yeah, Like right. I'd opened this pathway in my brain. Yeah. And it was now I had a shortcut to it. Fully. It was fucking, it's like, you That's know. That's awful, dude. Like, damn, I'm the guy from the after school special that says mm. don't smoke weed. You increase your chances of all these kind of things. Well, some, so people many- can have, some people have great times with weed. I've got a bunch of friends who are really successful. They're running great businesses and they go home and they smoke a joint and they have a great time. I, if I go in there and I have like a puff of that joint, I'll be thinking everyone wants to stab me. In, not that's exaggeration. I'll get, be getting paranoid. Yeah. Um, Worst. So, yeah, and like, look, but looking back on it, most things, like, I don't think I identified them as panic attacks. Like, right. it's kind of, you know, I just thought I was depressed. And uh-huh. actually, the expression I used to use was I was so depressed that I could feel it on my skin. Like, it was like a physical uh-huh. sensation of how unhappy I was. And I didn't have a self harm, but I felt like I could understand why people did that. Mm. And just um, to feel something? Yeah, absolutely. Well, just to kind of stop. That feeling and that, yeah, that was definitely the point where I started to get help and saw a really great psychiatrist and he got me onto, onto medication. And, um, yeah, from that point on, my yeah. life, like, really picked what, up. What happened in Italy? Oh, I was like... Uh, what was your job on the boat? I'd always wanted to work on boats. I'm a, I'm a, uh, I'm a sailor. I'm into sailing. That's how, uh, how um, beautifully middle class my upbringing was. We were into sailing, particularly in New Zealand. And, um, oh, in Auckland? Yeah. Oh, it's extraordinary. It's the best, man. Oh, my God. The access to – and plus the wind is just so reliable there. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. And, like, my dad is a really good sailor. Like, he almost he, – he kind of was a national champion in a few classes and stuff. And I was pretty good. I was, like, on the fringes of, like, the professional scene. I would come, like, you know, about fifth in the world champion – in the Australian championships. Wow. If, like, the fourth – four of them got to go to, like, the Worlds or something. Wow. So, yeah, I was pretty good at it and, yeah, and devoted a lot of time to it. And, um, yeah, and so I wanted to work on boats. That was my dream. So I left to do the big overseas trip, went to London, got a job in a pub, met a bunch of guys, had a great time over New Year's, um, and then uh, backpacked down through France, living my dream. That's all I wanted to do, be on my own backpack. I was like, great. Went down to Nice, the south coast of France, and um, tried to get a job on boats. So went the whole way around there going, like, asking for day work on the boats. That's what you do when you're looking for deckhand work. And then finally got a job in um, Antibes. And they would say, if you can catch a train to Italy, um, we'll give you a job right now, but you've got to go right now. And I was like, sure, bang, let's do it. Caught a train to this place near San Remo called um, Santo Stefano al Mare. Gorgeous 65-foot swan yacht, like just the most stunning boat. And so I was so hyped about it and uh, got the job on the boat and uh, was so just – you can imagine like how thrilled I was of life, dreams coming true and stuff. So then I borrowed – so the boat – 
that kind of boat has like its own equipment. They have like a van, they have a, a motorino, like a scooter. And like, and so I borrowed the scooter and headed into town to tell my mum that I got this job. And so I'm riding, riding out of the marina and um, this guy saw me and said, put a helmet on. And I was like, nah, man, he's like, put a helmet on, you idiot. So I put, put the helmet on, scooted down to um, the town, called my mum, said, mum, I got this job on the boat. It's the best thing ever. Dreams come true. Fantastic. Turn around on the bike and just gunned it. You know, I was like 21, just high on life. Everything's amazing. Blue sky, Mediterranean, and there's like the sea breeze coming off the water and there's only one corner in the road on the way back to the marina from the town. And so I'm gunning. I think I got up to like 90. I was just like, I think I was because I was so obsessed with computer games and stuff. Like I was into seeing the, <laughs> I don't know, young, dumb males. But yeah, and I came around the one corner and the sea breeze just picked me up. And on those little bikes with those little tires, like you just lose it. So did the bike just went out from under me and I just went head first into the barrier, like split the helmet. The bike's a complete write-off. This is the first day at work. <sighs> So, uh, and all the Italians are sitting around going, oh my God. And so they found me and like guy drove me to the marina and my captain, the captain of the boat took me to the hospital. I got a couple of stitches in my chin and, uh, and um, uh, my right leg had blood all over it, but my left leg was really sore, but I couldn't communicate that to the doctors. So they only x-rayed the wrong leg and did all the tests on that and said, no, it's fine. It's just scratches and stuff. But I knew the left leg was really bad. Then I got back and it turns out what had happened. I'd busted all ligaments in, in my left oh, knee. Shit. So uh, day one of the boat, I've ridden off this motorbike. And so he's like, great, but you just got to pay it back. So that's like four grand US. And I was earning like maybe, you know, 800 US a month or something. So I was like, okay, yeah. And I was, you know, do the right thing. Absolutely. I'll pay off the bike. Let's go. But I had a knee that was done. So and working on a boat with like slippery decks and stuff, my knee would just go. Um, so yeah, it was kind of, that's where it all started. But the actual reality was that, and then I was stuck on this boat. I was just living on this boat and there's no days off. When you're at the marina, you're there in the boat. When you're out on the cruise, you're on the boat. And uh, this little Italian town, there were like three people who spoke English. One of them was a guy whose main plan was to smuggle heroin into America. Yeah, <laughs> That no. was how he was gonna turn his life around. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, um, and uh, yeah, I just, I got like, just really progressively more isolated in this, this life that I'd created for myself and yeah. I was trapped there. and um, Literally cabin fever. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> Look, it's amazing times too. Like yeah. there were just some incredible moments of like sailing on the boat with no clients on the 65-foot yacht up the Mediterranean, like just the best times. And then, yeah, and then just got so depressed and so anxious. And, um, yeah, and then they wouldn't, he wouldn't, the captain, he wasn't, he didn't want me to go though. He was like, no, you can stay. You can stay. I was like, man, I don't think I can. I think I need to go. I'm going crazy. And he's like, no, no, just do one more, one more trip. Had you paid the thing off by now? Yeah, I think I had. So yeah, you were there for ages? Just. Yeah, it was about like six months. Yeah, right. Did your knee ever months. get better? Oh, towards the end, yeah, it stopped going out oh. on me. But then I got home and like, yeah, played a game of basketball and it just went pop straight away. And I hadn't told my mum that whole story. So she took me to the hospital and uh, the nurse was like, so have you ever had any damage to that knee? And I was like, well, uh, and my mum just sat there, like, as I told that entire story, going, yeah. you should have told us. <laughs> but anyway. So the captain was like, no, 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 you'll be fine. You'll be fine. I've seen this before. You'll be all right. Was he trying to? Uh, he was just like, he was, just, he was just, trying to, just trying to get through his job. I think he had like, you know, it's a really isolated spot getting crew there. He had a charter. He had the, like yeah. the owner of the boat turned up the day after that incident, like to go on a charter. Fuck. And the owner was this rich Belgian, like aristocrat, essentially, and just 
and it was just you know treated me like shit because I was an idiot, uh-huh. but also that European class structure that we yeah. find hard to relate to as Australians. Yeah, yeah. And when you're at the bottom of it, so were you out at sea when it all fell to bits, or? Um, no, I, it kind of it did. I kind of just there would be times when I was out at sea, particularly with the when there were um, clients on board and stuff, because you just had to just had to keep your head down. And a sixty-five foot yacht sounds really big, but when there's like four or five clients on there and three crew, like there's really not much room. But it was mainly when we're inshore and I'd just be sitting there and just like and smoking a bit of pot and things like that and just just yeah, panicking. It was right. really. Uh, and was there a moment, like, how did you, how did you get, did you just pack your shit and go or what happened? I should have just bolted, man. Like, looking back on it, I wish I had called my parents or whatever and just gone, look, it just bolted. But, yeah, in, and, yeah, I just finally, I just, it was so intense. I rang up um, my mum and dad said, I've got to go, I've got to get out of here. And I said to the guy, I've got to go. I, I did do the one more charter that he wanted mm. me to do. So we left on reasonably good terms. And then, um, yeah, I went back to Nice and I finally got a, and I was going to go back to London and, and then see my sister and then go home and look after it. But I got one call from this close mate of mine who's in Barcelona, this Norwegian guy called Sven, who's like one of my best mates. He's like, come on, man, come to Barcelona. We'll have some fun. And I was like, okay. Yeah. And so he shifted gears and then, and changed the plans. Got a, a train ticket to Barcelona from Nice. Got on the train. I had my bike. I had, always had a mountain bike because the riding around there is so dope. Yeah, yeah. So I had my bike and a backpack, popped it onto the Nice train. So crowded, so full of people and stuff and sat down on the seat and just started panicking so hard. Like it's crawling all over <sighs> me. I was like, what have I done? What have I done? Like this is, and so I just got off the train at like on Tib, just a few stops down the line, just left the bike on there, left most of my stuff on there and just got and just, I said, I've got to go. And um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then I went back to Nice, stayed at the backpack and someone stole my passport. Far out. So then I was like with these awful crippling panic attacks in Nice without a passport trying to get home. <laughs> God, I can't only imagine. I, I can really relate to that feeling of just like, uh, like the idea of leaving a train with half of your stuff, your bike, which is you know, yeah. your most precious thing when you're doing that kind of traveling, that it's, it's more beneficial and it feels safer and a better idea to just leave it and just get the fuck out of there. I'm so glad I did. Like, I don't know what I was thinking, thinking, but I, it was all just so undiagnosed. Like, yeah. like now that I'm aware of what my problems are and I take mm. medication to deal with it, but it's just so amazing. I was just trying to just, like, it seemed incredible to me that I would just think that I could just do it on my own. Did you have any idea that something was wrong at the time? I did. Did, I you, know that, you, I, did you know you were panicking? I did, well, I didn't call it panic. I just called it depression. And I knew that I was, I knew there was something wrong. Yeah. Absolutely. Is that and the problem? Um, I mean, I'm, I remember my, my, my guy told me, so the problem with crazy people is they don't know they're crazy. <laughs> that's, a, that's a real problem, like, especially when you get into psychosis and stuff like that. Definitely, yeah. They, just, they, they don't realise that they're seeing things out there or they don't realise they're hearing things out there. Or, oh, man, or, I just remember walking around like Nice and stuff and I just couldn't talk to people. Like I saw... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Like some, particularly this girl who I used to work with who was a, want a crew member on another boat or something and I saw her and I just couldn't talk to her I just couldn't so I was just so in my own bubble of oh. like anxiety <laughs> yeah I've definitely let's talk been about music man <laughs> I've definitely I've definitely been there without a shadow of a doubt I've definitely like, like gone days without speaking to people mm. when I used to live over there I used to live on the, up behind the icebergs so um, down the road a bit um, I would and I was working on Idol I was working I managed to cram all of my work into a Sunday and a Monday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I had a five-day weekend. Yeah. I would not leave the house. Yeah. Takeaway and I'd go across the road to the Cookie Mart to get bread maybe. Yeah. That's it. I didn't have to say anything. Do you anyone. feel like that you work so hard to like avoid downtime? Because oh, you work yeah. pretty oh, hard. fuck yeah, I do. Yeah. Absolutely. And I need to figure that out. No, I think it's like. But they pay me. Yeah. I, yeah, I let them. It works fun. Yeah, but work, I, I'm, I'm grateful that, that I, do, I do work a lot and I'm very, very lucky to considering that there was a, a time where I was unemployed and just fucked, um, not, not even so long ago. But now that I'm ordering a GG in my life, it's like I really need to you have other concerns not beyond fill every of single moment of my day with something. Yeah, I was always really driven by avoiding panic, I think, like yeah. and avoiding that feeling. <laughs> yeah, like it's that's a great the motivator. Whole, man, totally. <laughs> Like that's when I, when I got on the medication so just, and just not feeling that lost feeling. Yeah. So like and and it was when I was working on TV as well, like I'd do – you know how intense reviews are in TV shows oh, and yeah. films. Like so yeah. in, a, in a review of a mix, um, you sit there in the mix theater and then there's like these two rows of couches yeah. where all the producers and network executives sit. And so like on a review for Underbelly, there might be like 10 or 11 people and they all sit there behind you and you have to play them their work and then sit there with a the pad as they read out their notes and stuff. And that used to make me incredibly anxious. But the only way to deal with it for me was just to make everything as incredible as I possibly could and just work so hard on it. And, um, yeah. It makes you really good at your job. Yeah, that's yeah. That's the thing. And it makes that's, you driven, which is nice. That's, I, that's the thing is that, you know, you know, I can't speak for you, but, you know, my, my, the, doctor, the first doctor to diagnose me is like, look, it's just it's kind of like you've got this – you know, and I say this on the show a bit, it's like you can't show me an Olympic weightlifter that does the same same actions, the same 10 movements every day, 100 times a day, or, or, or a swimmer that does the same four movements, right arm, left arm, kick, kick, mm. tumble turn, right arm, left arm, kick, kick, tumble turn, every single day for 20 years so they can get a quarter of a second faster than someone else at Olympic Games. You can't show me that person and not tell me they have some sort of obsessive compulsive or some sort of avoidance or something. It's something happening. I think that's true for like musician, elite musicians as well. Like the amount of practice and dedication to achieve, you know, concerto um, piano status is yeah. just... There has, it has to be. Otherwise you just get so... But I think it's like it can be like there's a sliding scale of that kind of stuff and mm. whether like embracing mania is something that I've really done over the past five years because I have ups and downs and sometimes the ups can be a bit, a bit full on. 
think they're a full on for my family sometimes where I just kind of, I used to lie a lot. I just get really excited and stuff. But then like, since I've been with my wife, like about at last, you know, it's like eight years. It's really, she's really good at actually just saying, no, do it, go for it. Like anytime I come up with a stupid plan or I'm doing something and I'm clearly, and she's like, great, awesome, mm. do it. <laughs> like she doesn't tell me to like slow down or yeah. things like that. She's like, awesome, go, do it, do oh, it now, cool. you can do it. I'm like, so yeah, embracing those. Mania can be great. <laughs> <laughs> can be. So what yeah. was the, when, who was the, the doctor? What was the day that you finally went, all right, I've got to figure this out? Um, well, I'd gotten home and I was, you know, I was, I just, I was an absolute mess back at mum and dad's. I just remember like being in the bath there for hours and stuff. And so I was like, I just full-time care. Like my mum and mum was, mum's a kind of a healthcare professional. She's a physio and been very, very practical, worked in hospitals, knows all that kind of stuff. So I basically gave myself over to her and, and she's my mum too. And so she took me to a GP, our local GP and, and they, um, referred me to a great psychiatrist. And I saw it, I think we did like three times a week for a while there just to really get into it. And he got me on some Luvox SSRIs, um, which were which were cool. But he was he was a great and a great, excellent guy. He was really talented the way he would, you know, bring me out of my my shell and make me realise all these things that I'd gone through and stuff. And um, so yeah. Do you remember the first day that felt? Because when you do get a depression, every day can kind of feel worse than the last. Right. And it can, you think, it really feels like it's never going to end. This is a permanent sure. situation. And then Definitely, yeah. the world just gets darker and darker and darker and darker and darker and darker. Sometimes incrementally, very slowly over a long time, sometimes very, very quickly. But that first day that feels better than the last day is really... I remember my mum, uh, she... Um, Gave me a job. I used to, you know, have piles of CDs, like a lot of CDs, because I used to do community radio. Actually, yeah. like all these CDs that I'd take to my shifts and stuff. And Mum was like, she'd seen like an old set of drawers, and she was like, you could convert that into a, into a thing. And I was just kind of sitting at home. There's like these projects that she would give me, and I remember. So I got like these drawers, and I like cut it up and sanded it and painted it, and I was just like so thrilled with what I've done. Mm. So I made like these photo montages of all my overseas things, and just like the act of putting those together and like actually achieving things like was, was um, yeah, everything was going to be all right. And that's kind of the way I do things now with like when I do find myself down or find myself in a place where I'm not being productive, I just write lists of things, easily achievable things like just get up. Like you can start with just get a cup of tea, you know, take the dog for a walk, do that and then work on that, achieve that. But once you just start, start ticking off those things, I think that's a great way to deal with it. It's fascinating that you talk because that was what was told to me when, like, when I was at the deepest. Um, uh, Simon, uh, I know a Simon with two eyes. Yeah, he's got two eyes in his name. Uh, really fascinating guy, Simon Reynolds. You remember? Oh, you might be too young. There was it's a name a, that rings a bell. There's a he's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant Sydney copywriter. Uh, he lives in LA now. Um, he uh, wrote the um, Grim Reaper bowling ball. Uh, AIDS commercial that ran in the 80s. Oh, Terrifying. Right. He was 18. It was okay. one. It was incredible. Anyway, um, when I was really dark, he told me exactly that. He goes, I want you to tomorrow, I want you to, the night before, says the brain doesn't like um, uncertainty and right now your brain is really not liking uncertainty. So I need you to write down exactly what you're going to do tomorrow in incremental steps. It can be wake up, go to the toilet, put the kettle on, like that small. Mm. I want you to check it all off. And then at the end of the day, you look back at it and you've honestly, you've gone, I've done 57 things today. Yeah. All right. Maybe everything isn't horrible. Yeah. And it really helps. Another great technique that got taught to me more recently um, 
was like uh, if if you feel like if you're feeling really anxious, you can just there's a checklist of things like what what are what are um, five things I can hear with my eyes closed? What are five things that I'm touching? And then like, yeah, and w- where am I and stuff? All these like just just going through a little mental checklist yeah, of that. Yeah. And like at the, once you've done that, actually I generally find my anxiety reduced down a bit. Bringing you into the room. Yeah. Really bringing you into the room, yeah. Because I yeah, anxiety is the fear of, what is it? Depression is a thing of something that's happened in the past and anxiety is the fear that's happened to something in the future. And that's why they're treated the same a lot huh. of the time. Okay. Yeah, because I'm, you know, anxiety is I'm afraid something might happen. Yeah. Someone might say something. Someone might think something, you know, that I'm doing is bad or depression is I can't believe that happened or. Yeah, if I'm, for sure. I remember after, my, after I got divorced, I used to, um, I knew that when I was in if only or what if, I was, things would hurt rather than what can I do right now. Yeah. And if I, and I'd just try and reframe. That kind of that kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you got you started to get a little better back on track, and was there a point where you know is this this sort of stuff all this stuff all happened before you got into the um, the audio production? Oh well, this, no, this is kind of well, yeah. I got a job pretty quickly, so maybe O two when I got a job at Tracks. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then um, and yeah, I was still dealing. I kind of kept going off medication. I, I, I was never comfortable with staying on it. <laughs> It took like a number of times of me like I would go off the pills thinking that I was fine yeah. and then I'd crash, have these panic attacks and quite often they were due to work situations then like I'd do it in mm. a mixed review or yeah, yeah. Um, I had a shocking one on um, the Ronnie John's Half Hour which yeah. is one of my favourite shows to work on but I'd, I got so into it. They had like this little animation and so I ripped but the animation looked a lot like this classic computer game so I ripped the music off that computer game and mixed it in and kind of did this whole montage and then I just like saw it go to where I was like, oh my God, that's copyrighted. I can't believe I put that in. And um, of course, who cares? It's like, it was an eight bit theme for like a, an eighties thing that, you know, no, I don't even know if it is, but I just freaked out. Yeah, yeah. So it's just stuff like that. Um, but um, yeah, but then I read, so once I'd done it a couple of times, the, the shrink was like, mate, you, you've, you've got to stop coming here. Like this is, it happens every two or three years or so just stay on it. That's, that's you yeah. for the rest of your life. You've got to stay on the pills. That was that's, that's tough. I had to I had to face that one. It was really, it was really fucked up actually. When yeah, I you to, seem like you're not you because you you do you stay on them? Yeah. these days. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I've I've had to come to in the same way of my drinking. I had to come to the realization that I could never have another drink. Right. All right. When I first stopped drinking, it, the idea of living the rest of my life without drinking was actually, it was so humongous. Yeah. I actually had to trick myself, like the two parts of me, the me and the, the observer, yeah. the, the, the two parts of me within. The observer me had to tell the other me, I had to write it down. It's like, un, until I can, I'll, I won't drink for the next like 12 weeks, three months. And, and during that time, I'll, I'll explore my healthy relationship, explore what I can do to have a healthy relationship with alcohol. I'll only ever have another drink if I can have a healthy relationship with alcohol. Mm. And pretty much once I put a time frame on it and once I hadn't just gone, right, that's it, no more for the rest of your life ever and that every time I was saying no, I was, you know, changing my life. And I thought it was for the worst, but every time I say no now, it's changing my life for the best. Um, Once I'd taken that whole thing out of it and just like just today, I'm going to explore what it's like to have a healthy relationship with alcohol. I've realized very early on that I'm incapable of having a healthy relationship with alcohol. Right. It just, I just can't do it. I just can't. I have a healthy, loving embrace with alcohol. Well, good for you. <laughs> I'm glad. 
I don't know, man. You're lucky, man. We don't know. What I don't know is is, is it? You're is lucky. It like, got, is it, a, mate, is it if, holding me, or is it? If a, you didn't get if you didn't get bit by the bug, you're lucky. You're lucky. I got. But like bit, now, I'm in this world of professional alcoholism. Well, you see, that's the thing. I've been um, working at Channel V, particularly. Sure. There must have been. I reckon. Oh man, rock and roll music. Mate, there were three people removed from me before it came anywhere near someone who went, "Hey, buddy, you want to really think about having that right now?" Oh man, there. Like, yeah, yeah, fully. I, I don't think I paid for a drink for two years. Yeah, yeah. You know, certainly when Idol was at its peak, yeah. it was just pff, every every night there was something to go to, and every day, everywhere there was a bar tab. Well, I'm really fortunate that I think I only no one wants to see hot dog on a Tuesday. <laughs> I don't actually do that many midweek, like Monday to Thursday. I'm with my family and with yeah, my right. kids and my wife living, a, uh, going to bed at nine o'clock and Love getting it. up at 6.30. How good. But then Friday, Saturday, I'm... Uh, Red Bull's best customer. Oh, man. <laughs> Anything. Yeah. Well, see, this is the, this is the thing. And, and in the same way, I, I was given a uh, – I was on SSRIs and things started to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, unfortunately. Mm. Um, but that's, you know, how these things happen. And my doc said, here, here's this drug. Just take it when you're, when you're feeling it. He didn't tell me what it was. He just said, just take a half of this if you're having a bad day. So I started taking half of that when I was having a bad day and it was working all right. Then I finally went online and worked out or something. what it was. No, 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 no. It was an antipsychotic. Oh. And I'm like, well, fuck, if I have to take an antipsychotic – that means I'm actually really sick. I don't know. No, no, no. There's no way. There's no way I experience psychosis. No fucking way. No, no. I'm too clever for that. I can live without it. Yeah. I started trying to grip my teeth and get through it and it Ugh. became – he was basically – he read me the riot act. It's the same doctor that told me, you, you know, you're a fucking idiot. Stop drinking. The yeah. same doctor told me, you're a fucking idiot. You need to have this for the rest of – this is how it is. This is you yeah. for life. And it's if, not a bad thing. It's just a no, thing. it's not a bad thing. But I thought, you know, I, when I first got exposed to the state, um, it was back then, it was the state mental health system while I got caught by, thank fuck, when I was 19. Um, I used to sit in this clinic, which was just full of like full on schizophrenic dudes in the waiting room, like pissed themselves, like the whole stinks because they ha don't have showers, you know, like really frightening stuff. And I was in that waiting room and there was bulletproof glass and everything. This is in Brisbane in the Valley and the 90s. And I remember asking her, I was like, what's wrong with you guys? Oh, like, they feel better than they go off their meds. And I was thinking to myself, who'd be so stupid? That's ridiculous. Look at yourself. Yeah. And there I was feeling better and trying to go off meds and then feeling that if I took it, then I'm failed. I know. And there's like a thing, I was watching Garden State the other day uh -huh. on a plane. Love that movie and stuff. But the whole, a lot of that is Zach Braff like coming off his medication and it all being wonderful, like his life turning for the better. And I'm like, <laughs> it's great. And you obviously the plot of that justifies it a little bit more. But there's a whole, it, there was, a, I think there's, hopefully there's less of a stigma now attached right. to that kind of thing. But I did have to change my medication like yeah. five years ago because, yeah, the SSRIs that were on. I went off, I thought I'd go off them when we had the kid. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was like, because they did used to numb me a little bit and I thought, no, I want to be totally present for the yeah. birth. And, I'm, and we were so happy. We were just so happy the whole pregnancy and everything's going great yeah. we're doing all the natural birth classes and everything's going to be good we're going to have a lovely birth and stuff and then you get to the birth man that was just the worst wow it was, it was uh it's a thing that yeah it was all it was like three and a half days of labor and i'm there off my meds and and i was just like it's just the one of the worst days of my life oh, <laughs> shit. i think i don't think people talk about that enough just how awful childbirth can be and so, it's the most um, dangerous thing a woman can do in her lifetime. Oh, man. Absolutely. And it's it, terrifying. Uh, yeah. It's just, 
she, she got pretty real. And so I, yeah, I had a full meltdown yeah. around the end of the time when you really want to be there for you. Yeah. But, but I, I know what you're saying state. about that. That's why I went off him. Yeah. That's why I went off him because, yes, I wasn't having, you know, panics every day. Mm. Um, but I was trying to date again. And the sexual side effects. Well, yeah, that's exactly fun. it. I was yeah. trying to date again. And I'm like, I don't feel the spark. To yeah. anyone I'm going on dates with. Oh, hang on. I don't feel the spark about anything. Yeah, fully. <laughs> and am, am I horny? Nope. I'd no. much rather, I'll oh, just, just Game of Thrones to watch. You yeah. Know? <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. And that's, you know, you've got to, you know, that's part of what makes you. But that's human. why you're always playing with your dose on it as well, then. So, but I mean, they, they were good for me for like 10 years, but, and so I got down to quite a low dose that I was able to have yeah. you know, sexual relationships and stuff, but, um, but yeah, I moved on to this Allegron now. It's a tricyclic thing. Oh, I want a tricyclic. I really school. like it. Yeah, I've gone old school. I, it makes me really thirsty though. So I'm yeah, constantly, yeah, weird mouth. I'm constantly drinking water. Man. Constantly drinking water. Yeah, my guy's he's gone full old school. Like I, that was I really one of the like first it. ones, tricyclics. I find that I'm like I'm much more prone to like I can get really emotional now. Yeah, right. And I do get really emotional, or I can, and my mood can snap and go quite down. Uh. So, but yeah, I come back like, like there's way more in between time. Oh, okay. That's for my experience. Oh, it? okay. I'm still waiting to figure out how to cry. I'm still working on that. Oh, oh man, it's crazy at the moment. Like I, it's just, it's not. Uh, it's it's music like and like when we were in saw we saw Wicked in New York oh, it's the a while ago. Right. I know, but at like, the Winter Garden Theatre. Oh, I guess so. The yeah, big one in the New big York. One. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The original. It was just, but yeah, like the just seeing the Wizard and the Eye. Like I'm in tears. Like I can't, just, <sighs> I can't watch. It's something. It's just music. You know, I'll see stuff and just start crying. Right. In a way that I never was before, and I, like I certainly never did when I was on the SSRI. When, when you met, when you met your partner, did you say, "Oh, hi, by the way, I'm Tom. This is what happens with my brain," or did she figure it out? Or how did you have that? Conversation? Well, we both have the same kind of issues, and by oh, that stage, okay. I like. And by that stage, I was very comfortable with it I think and, and I would yeah. something I was happy to talk about with my friends and yeah and I try to try to be open with it and help other people who are in the same kind of situation if they're going through it so good for you man like I told I told Audrey like like on day one yeah yeah fucking you gotta you gotta I think it took us a while because we took a while to it took me a while to get over the being the uh, man child late 20s idiot and realised that she was amazing, and I, and I really wanted to commit to her. Right. Um, and so we both had our ups and downs. But yeah, she's on, she's on medication as well. And so I, the, the thing that I'm really weirded out about about the future. So both of us are medicated for our moods, and we've got like two daughters. So what's going to be like? I don't know how you do it when they're teenagers, and how you tell the difference between normal teenage moodiness and like. Anxiety disorders, you know what huh. I mean? Because we'll be so like hyper aware of it because we're always yeah. managing our own moods. I don't know, man. I think, it'd be, I think anything that lingers might be the, the mm. key or anything that's exceptionally irrational. I still feel a stigma about like giving a teenager, you know what I mean? I yeah. don't know why that's a barrier in my mind about that kind of stuff. I guess when I'm there, I'll as read is, more about as it. As is 12 and we are, <laughs> what well, I think I said to Audrey the other day, because um, we're, we're almost there, man. And uh, right now, Audrey's Justin Timberlake and Gigi's Joey Fatoni. <laughs> We're in sync, mate. It's <laughs> I come home and it's like, what the fuck? Oh, I'll be walking the dog catching Pokemon in the park. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, just need a moment before I could get into figure figure out what's happening. Well, you've you know? gone straight there, dude. You even, even though... Straight, no, yeah. no nappies? No. Well, that's the thing. I've got two years parenting experience, but I've got a 12-year-old. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, you know, cut straight to the chase. 
oh man, it's, it's all good. It's great. It's the greatest thing ever. Mm. It, it's so good. And, uh, you know, watching Stranger Things terrifies me now. I wouldn't have been able to watch that show. And I can't no do scary stuff. I can't oh. do it at all. You're, you're a horror guy though. You it's not that scary though, but it's just it deals with- Even if it's a little bit scary. It deals with the missing kids. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, yeah. I'm fucked. I like like when I'm flying home from, because I do a lot of travel, when I'm flying home from the UK especially, I like to really watch some stuff that will really fuck with my head. <laughs> like, um, And then because I'm in that hyper tired, I haven't slept for like three days, yeah. drunk, and um, yeah, sit there, watch, so that kind of stuff. Yeah. There's a film called Locke that is, is a fantastic uh, English movie featuring the guy who's in Mad Max. Um, acting his Tom ass Hardy. off, Tom oh, Hardy. He's a, he's a really good actor. Oh, you should so see Locke, but it's a really intense story. It's about this guy cheating, you know, on his wife, and it's awful, and his whole life crumbles. This crumbles around him, so it's like my worst fears, you know, expressed in, in a movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, I kind of I like doing that to myself sometimes. So, at what point did you, you know, obviously you were you're sitting here in a Daft Punk T-shirt. You've converted from the you converted from metal over to dance music. At, at what point did you think, you know, I might, I might have a stab at this. I might give it a shot. What, what was it? Well, it was like um, it was actually the Ronnie Johns half hour. So I mixed that show, and through that, I met Dan Illick, who you've you've interviewed. Yeah. And um, Dan was putting on some comedy nights, and I just got along so well with all those guys, especially Dan. And he was putting on a night at the Roxbury called Commerside, and he said, "Do you want to come and DJ?" And I went, "Yeah." And I actually didn't work the sound because he needed someone to turn the microphones on, and I was like, "Oh, I can DJ too." So I set up the decks and DJed for him. And I did that kind of in the comedy world for about like four years of just kind of DJing at the back of comedy rooms. So I didn't really come at it through like a club way. And it was just, DJing was just my hobby. I got my decks in like 2002, and, but I never really got many gigs. I was, my taste was always too eclectic. Like you see my record collection, yeah. it is mainly, it's just, I love sound effects records. I love spoken word records. I love weird stuff. Like I just couldn't, get into like buying 30 house records and playing a house set. It just bored me. So I never got many gigs. Um, but in this comedy world, all of a sudden people were like, oh my God, he's playing the greatest American hero theme. And then he's playing ACDC and then he's playing Jump Around. This is dope. And I, I saw, oh, this is fun. And so I started getting good gigs. And then I thought, oh, look, I, I'm, I want to make my own show. I want to make my own thing that I can take to these festivals. And so, um, and yeah, I started DJing with video. So my stuff is all audio visual. And um, I used to make kind of mash-up stuff and, and scratch them. But then I thought, I'm going to make an audiovisual time-travelling show at the Sydney Fringe Festival. And, um, yeah, and, and I, this deadline for entries was coming up. And so I needed the name. I walked around the park, thought about putting it on my Facebook, going, I'm going to make a time-travelling audiovisual dance party. What should I call it? A mate of mine from Scotland popped up, said, call it Hot Dub Time Machine. I went, great. Put that on the entry form. Put like a three-line thing about what it would be a time traveling dance party and sent it in and then I had to make it so that the gig was like three months away <laughs> and I had to sit there and create this thing and um, I did and from there like it kind of has been a very slow gradual process to taking over my life to being oh no this is really fun oh this is really fun oh my gosh this is incredible oh my god there's like 15,000 people there it's Falls Festival at Byron Bay what the hell oh my gosh, I'm supporting Chaka Khan in the main. There's 40,000 people there who seem to be enjoying what I do um, to where it is now, which is like my job and, and um, it's awesome. What was the moment that you went, okay, I'm going to have to quit everything else and do this? It was when we had the kid actually. Was, we were really I, – I was kind of – The second kid? The first kid. First kid. So we had Lizzie in like – she's 18, 12, 12, so 2012. 
So I'd been doing it for not that long. But we, we had her and, and I, I just – I was hating posts too. I hated TV. I'd, I'd gone from loving it to just ma- in making my skin crawl, yeah. having – just particularly just working with this, the collaboration, having producers tell me yeah. <laughs> their notes and having to constantly, and also it's, it was kind of felt a little bit like a dying industry. Budgets are getting smaller. Yeah. Time, you have to do more work for less money and mm. just kind of. That's the thing. Like, tracks mm. is still there and not a lot of them aren't. Oh, tracks is great and he does, they, yeah, I think it's Steve a big operation, will be there for but a while. Like I, and bless him, they helped me. Um, buy the microphone. They have this incredible microphone there that I, I would voice track Bondo Rescue on and they, uh, it was just logistically getting to be ridiculous. I just couldn't take the time to go over there and, mm. and do it. And they said, look, mate, just just set it up at home. And they, they showed me what they're like, look, we are losing money by sending you home to do this, but we know you can. Yeah. And we'd rather you get the track clean and that way we can do the post on it than, you know, you not come in at all or you record it on a, we used to get your voiceover, and everyone would say, "Oh, this is um, this is Andrew G's voiceover." Yeah. He records it in his in his wardrobe in, in LA. Yeah, yeah, in LA. Yeah. Well, was a, at that point, I was doing it on an SM7B, okay, a Shure SM7B, and I'd record it straight into Ableton on my laptop. Um, but now I um, I record it on Reaper because I couldn't get um, right. I couldn't get Pro Tools to work on my bloody Mac Pro. Didn't huh. it? Yeah, wouldn't work. Wouldn't oh, man, I could sort that out for you in a second. <laughs> yeah, but then I mean, uh, I guess. But if you, if you, Pro Tools is, is incredible, but if you can achieve what you need to achieve in other well, software. Well, I, I mean, I would like to, I probably should get back into Pro Tools. I did enjoy it when it first came, when I first started in radio. I think we got our first rig in 95 or 96. I was mm. just so, so, I played with it earlier at the, my mates had gone to the con. It's like and the so sound had, designer times, pre-Pro Tools, a sound designer too, possibly in the. No, I don't know. Pro Tools. 93 was the first time I saw Pro Tools okay. and that was on a, an old beige Mac, the old one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was before the Tower Macs had come in in 93. And um, then uh, in 95, we got a rig at the B105. And then, uh, yeah, I hadn't played with it for ages. But I, I always found Ableton kind of fun. But um, I Because now I'm in, in, the, in the music world and I just see um, – these, uh, I know there's a lot of talk about like the music industries in a terrible way and all that kind of stuff, but like the dance music industry oh. and these young, amazing Aussie performers. Yeah. And so I do a bunch of touring with them, like I did Stereosonic last year, uh-huh. and you just see them using Ableton. And you're like, oh man. They play it like an instrument. It's just, and it's just so, such an awesome yeah. thing. There's a band out of LA, I think, does it best, a band called Glitch Mob. Okay. Amazing. So they play um, Lima, I think they're called. Yeah, touch I got a pads. Lima. I used to, well, they were the Daft yeah. Punk had yeah. those in the pyramid. So yeah, I, I they play touchpads and they, because, you know, we live in it, they, they tilt everything forward so the audience can yeah. see that they're playing it live. Yeah. Right? All the keyboards are tilted forward, all the drums are tilted forward, yeah. all the Lima pads are tilted forward and everything's, they're just triggering samples with these touch screens. There's three of them and the whole thing fires off video as well. Yeah. Whenever they, it's extraordinary what they've built. But they've turned this... I don't know, like they've turned this Ableton, which is a software that basically triggers samples and triggers video files, they've turned it into essentially like, like a pipe organ for the new age. Like when you think about the complexity of pipe organs, like a really good one, mm. was like five manuals and the feet yeah, and yeah. 150 stops and pipes that are not even in the room, they're that big. You know, when you think about the complexity of that machine built custom for that concert hall, you know, that these guys basically go on tour with one. Well, I used to use Ableton for like doing live sound design to yeah. comedy and impro shows. So really? it's like, you know, 
Did you ever use instant replays? You probably did, like oh, yeah. those kind of things. So Camera Stick Five used one of them on stage. There you go. Yeah. Well, yeah. We I used to. Um, so yeah, you would have like a massive Ableton set. It looks like a spreadsheet with just yeah. hundreds of bits of, of production music and sound effects. Yeah. And I would watch like comedy and theatre and, and just kind of punch, do live sound design to them. You do anything. Fun, stuff, fun, fun. So what about technically now when you go out? On, on stage, what do you what do you run? Well, these days I have uh, two turntables, two vinyl turntables, um, Technics 1200s, although now I use the Pioneer ones, and um, a DJ mixer and Serato is, is mm. my jam, Serato DJ software. Serato is a software. If ever you see a DJ who has a laptop, nine times out of ten it will be Serato. Yeah. Don't buy Tractor. I bought Tractor. Oh, okay. Bad idea. Oh, man, there's a lot of people who use Tractor oh, and are amazing. Terrible. If, if you're a dance music guy, if you're going to play techno, yeah. You're going to play house music, get Tractor. Yeah. If you're going to play different genres or you just want something more more simple yeah. and stable, then Serato. So does that fire the video as well? Um, yeah, there's plugins for it. So there's like a thing called Serato Video, but I use a program called Mix Emergency that's like even better. But what it does, so normally in Serato, um, Serato was invented to replace records. So you don't have to carry your records around. You load an MP3 onto these virtual decks and then those virtual decks are controlled from your turntables CDs. But with this video plugin, you just load quick times. So every every song I play, I have to edit the video for or create a video for it. And um, so they, and then you load it onto the deck and all of a sudden you're controlling, you know, in, in real time, the video file. So you can scratch it, you can loop it, you can do whatever you want. You can mix two videos together. Um, and yeah, it's mainly used by like kind of really commercial American hip hop DJs. And you might probably don't even notice them them doing it just kind of plays music videos that are in sync to them. But there's a couple of people who realise the creative potential of that system. The main, one of the first ones, a guy called DJ Yoda, um, who's awesome. There's an Aussie guy called Sampology, who is just elite at it. But um, yeah, with Hot Dub Time Machine, we kind of took it to a new way by creating this whole character. Like I have a virtual cabin attendant and time lord, which my wife plays. And so we shot and make all these green screen videos. So she introduces the show and does like pre-flight briefings. And then there's the whole like kind of time travel bits and stuff. <laughs> like, so yeah, it has a whole, a whole, um, a whole different depth to it. Carla, Carla, who's my makeup artist and has been forever. Um, she and I had her first day on TV together, April 12th, 1999. She was on work experience. I'm 10 years older than her. Um, <laughs> She went uh, the other night, um, not the last time you played, the time before. It was only a few weeks apart, I think, your mm. last two Sydney gigs. And I was like, what's wrong? She goes, oh, my feet hurt. I'm like, why? She goes, oh, I've done Time Machine. I said, really? She goes, yeah, it's the fourth time. <laughs> yeah. Like she fucking loves it. You know, like if your favourite band toured four times in a year and a half, by the fourth time you'd be like, ah, it's a new episode of Mr. Robot. I might stay home. But what is it that you brings people back? I think, I don't know, man. I think it like the concept on paper is, you know, that you travel through time with music. So you start in like the 50s and then you go in chronological order with kind of a song a year, but you miss a few the whole way back to 2016. But um, like, and that, that sounds kind of cool, but like in practice, when you're there, it has a kind of a, uh, a feeling and an atmosphere that is uh, kind of hard to write down. And it's um, basically it's a celebration of music, I think, and it's about dancing. Like it's it's uh, so I've taken basically everything that I love about good gigs and everything that I hate about bad gigs and refined them into this kind of this kind of show and this formula that I keep trying to make better and, and work on. And um, 
Yeah, it is. It's uh, it's the best party ever. <laughs> it is the best party ever. It is the best party. But yeah, I ever. think there's no like dance. There's not enough not enough places you can go and dance and have a, like a rock solid dance. And I made hot dub for like every time I seen a band and the lead singer turn his back on the crowd when they finish and have a chat with a drummer or like anytime you see a DJ and they look bored to be there or like when you go and see someone and you, when you go out partying and you, you want to hear music but someone's just not giving a shit about the crowd. Like what I do is like the uh, the opposite of that, like every single gig, I'm going to tell you that you're the best crowd we've ever had and that you are beautiful and this is like, and we, we hit them with as much, becomes this kind of joy feedback loop. And because yeah. I love it so much, like I don't play songs that I don't like, I only play songs that I love. And so you get this kind of feedback loop of, of um, happiness and, and it just kind of goes. <laughs> no, that's amazing. And now it's become like a, the full family business. You, your wife does a lot of work for you as well? Well, yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's us, man. It's just us. It's, um, yeah, it's, kind of, we, it's now a company that we own and, yeah. and um, we make. And, yeah, it's kind of, it can get a little, little lonely because it's just, just me. But it's nice. So, but Alexandra, my wife, we, we discuss everything and, like, mm. make plans together and all that kind of stuff. So, Wow. So yeah. amazing, man. You have to come, mate. Check it out. I, f- I have to come. I know, your schedule though. I know, but, but like, I've, we, we finished like the bulk of production in about three weeks. But we're doing a couple in November. Weekends, but... are, weekends are free. Can, are they any of the all ages gigs? Absolutely they are. The, like, we'd, all the, we've been trying to do as many all ages as we can. So the last two uh, in Sydney and Adelaide, I do all ages. Because I just love it. Because like people come in their sixties, like my folks come and bring their friends, and there's there's a group of women in Perth called the Hot Dub Mummers. Get out. Who are legends in like their fifties who just come out and represent like down the front. And in Perth, I play late, like I play twelve to three in the morning. And um, the other thing I like about that is like when I go out for a dance, it doesn't have a finite ending. It's that, like yeah. we're going to go to this club until. Either some of it's, one of us gets bored or someone gets too smashed or someone pulls and then we'll just kind of – we'll just get in and then we don't know when it ends. Yeah, and, man. And it's kind of like this – I never liked that. I never <laughs> liked that. The idea of like, no, no, this is where we're going to start, this is where it's going to finish and this is how much dancing we're going to do in between. I really like the idea that there's a, there's a finality about it and so there's only a few songs left. Yeah. Better get it in. Oh, man. And yeah, people like, you know, where were you in 1987? I was at the bar getting a drink or like – People talk about it in that way. Like, ah, ah. turn to my mum and dad, did you make it past 1996 this time? <laughs> yes, we stayed till the mid-2000s. But, yeah, definitely. That's I think it's because I'm really big on – because I came from that fringe festival world, it's, I think of it way more as a show than most DJs think yeah. of it. Like, it's a it's – a, because I did all these um, – I used to tour with um, – in Spiegel Tents. That's where yeah. I first kind of started yeah. out. And um, there were circus performers, this great circus called Limbo, and you'd see them like that show and their art is so intense. They do like, you know, nine or 10 shows a week of like acrobatics and jumping around, but they just never, there's no days off. Right. There's no like going, oh, I'm too tired. There's no nothing. They get out there and just smash it every time. And so you kind of go, if they can do that, then I can get up and play music and just give it everything I got every time. How much, uh, how much of the week do you spend, you know, just tweaking the show? Oh, uh, like a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of. Um, Are you in an Uber and go that song? Oh, big time! How did I not put Christopher Cross running like the wind? That's why I want you to come so that you can like <laughs> just give me your because that's what people their reaction to Hot Dub is always. Why didn't you play this? Oh right, or, right you know right. What, what, the, everyone has their own kind of their own Hot Dub playlist. I would request it like a full yacht rock section. Oh man, 
it was like it used to be way more of a when I first came up with it, it was like a music documentary. Like yeah. I tried to hit every genre and every like significant thing yeah. that happened in pop music. But then as I started doing like bigger shows and things, I just people nah, it's just gotta be like the best broadest parties. Yeah. I want every song to hit like eighty percent of the people. A lot of singing, I'm guessing. Oh man, the singing along because we were talking about that I was talking about it the other day on um, on a different thing. But yeah, singing singing collectively as a group. So good. Man, and like when you're sitting there, you, there's a song you hear come on and you like start singing along and then you see someone else is singing along as well and all of a sudden there's like 2,000 people singing along to her as well. It's like that's, that's a collective awesome experience. It is and it's super important. And that's the mm. other thing about well, you talked about raves very briefly. I always found raves to be such an insular thing. I could be in this massive room full of people off chops and I'm almost I'm dancing alone. I oh, no, see that, man. My, that's why I loved about raves is yeah. that I had the opposite experience yeah. to that. Maybe I don't, depending on what kind of chemicals are in my yeah, system. Right, yeah, but yeah, I yeah. really loved talking to people. Oh. Like, I really loved – that's why I loved that world that actually I left all my anxiety at the door oh, okay. and I would just yeah, just love talking shit to people, just <laughs> dribbling in their ear about stuff. Well, that's yeah. fantastic, man. Good for you. Thank you. Good for you. And, and what uh, – you know, I guess, you know, the, the question is, is who's the – Who's you know Doc, Doctor Who always has another Time Lord waiting in the wings? Who are you? Who are you mentoring? Who are the young people you're you're helping develop their thing? Well, I just uh, there's a young guy from Adelaide. I kind of gave him a, a kind of a grant and to put his show in the Adelaide Fringe. He's this, he has a show called Heartaches and Drum Breaks. He made this CD. He made like a he spent five years making this album and he just put it up on Bandcamp and sent me a link to it. And I kind of didn't download it for a month and then I downloaded it before a flight once and put it on. And just as the plane was taking off, I was like, I'm going to remove flight mode and send you a message. This is the most amazing shit I've wow. ever heard, dude. You are, that you, you're leaving DJ Shadow for, wow. for dead. And he's like my idol, DJ Shadow. So that was a big thing. But yeah, so then I told him he'd make a visual show. And so he put that on. So yeah, I'm really excited about what he's doing. And um, yeah, it's also really fun just to work in the dance music industry, just to come around to it in my mid-30s. Like a lot of, all the people I work with are kind of, young hungry producers and DJs themselves and just like devoting themselves to the art of that, which I really dig. I'm sure there's a lot of happy people in the, in, you know, on Sunday mornings around the country when you're finished, man. It's like, it's, yeah, it just, it just, it makes, makes people happy and it makes me happy. So, um, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> if that's what you do to make get happy, that's, that's totally fine. But man, it is like a drug. Like it is, I'm aware of that. Like the the buzz I got from playing for 400 people four years ago is long gone. Like you know what I mean. Like oh, the right. gig's got to get bigger. Yeah, the experience yeah. has got to get bigger. So, and I'm always looking for ways to. Like we had a gospel choir on the weekend and a violinist doing Rage Against the Machine solos. She did Eddie Van Halen beat it solo <laughs> on the violin. So just like, yeah. Always trying to think, dream up new ways. Oh man, I'm so stoked. And honestly, really, thank you so much for coming on here and talking about, you know, Headspace because so many people may not, you know, realise that. I mean, I, I went, the other day I was, did this, this article, they wrote this article and, you know, they asked, you know, what is it? And I said, look, I just, people have this idea about mental illness and that uh, someone who's experienced like really, really dangerous levels of, of, of mental illness and, you know, brushes with psychosis and stuff. People think that, oh, that's a person sitting on the park bench screaming at things that no one else can see or hear. It's like, well, when you're looking on the telly and you're looking at someone who looks like me counting roses, that's what you're looking at. All right, that's what I fucking went through. And 
that someone like yourself could have such success and, you know, not everybody has to be playing to 15,000 people, you know, yeah. <laughs> overseas. But, you know, that by taking care of yourself and, and taking responsibility for what's going on with your head, that there is, you know, there is another side. And the hot tub is like every time I get on stage is a victory over that anxiety for me. Yeah. And it's, it's been such a graduate, like the stage fright I used to have and, and the nerves. And I still have massive anxiety and stage fright. But every time I get up there is, is a win. Yeah. And so it's like a long, it's just, it's just saying get up there and do it once and get up there and do it again. And then before you know it. Um, I love it, man. I'm there. Thanks so much for coming around. Mate, a pleasure to see you. Thanks very so much. Good. No it's worries. Thanks. I'm going to take your photo real quick, all right? Done. That was Hot Dub Time Machine. You can follow him on Instagram. Hot Dub Time Machine is his handle there. Thank you so much for listening. Go and check out a Hot Dub Time Machine. Best night ever. He reckons he gets people, as you said, as you heard, people in their 50s go and, go and see it. Hot, hot Dub Grannies, I think they call themselves. Uh, it's a it's a cracking night out, a cracking dance, and uh, we can't wait to take Gigi along. She's going to love it. Um, HotDubTimeMachine.com for all his dates and details. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for supporting the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash Osher. If you can afford five bucks a month, you get the exclusive episodes. Uh, if you can't afford five bucks a month, the way to have a shot at those exclusive episodes, just leave a review on iTunes this week, and I'll choose a random review for next week's show. I'll read out their name on next week's show and you'll get access to the exclusive episodes. Uh, it's that easy. Thanks heaps uh, for listening. Um, thanks, Big thanks to Andy Ma, who's producing this episode. Uh, thanks very much to Toe Hider. A lot of people loving the new theme song. It's all Toe Hider, man. Follow him on at Toe Hider on Twitter. All right. I'm going to get on my bike because life's better when I'm on my bike. Take care of yourselves. I'll talk to you next week. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.